Good evening, everybody. Good to be with you again. The midterm's finally over. At least they're over, right? Now maybe the, we'll get a few months off from the door-to-door canvassers and the nonstop robocalls. We were just getting calls off the hook. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, right in the mailbox, stuff full of a billion of the exact same flyer every time. I get it. You don't like that person. I get it, but... You know, one of the things I find kind of fascinating about every election cycle is how uh, different people or different pundits will have different assessments of what this election is all about. This is what this election is all about. Uh, You'll hear them say things like, this election is all about the economy, or this election is all about immigration, or this election is all about people's response to Donald Trump one way or the other. And of course, every election is just a mixture of a whole bunch of different issues, obviously. We've been a few months in the book of Daniel now, going through, and so if I was to poll you and ask, what is the book of Daniel all about? It's a trick question. There's no single answer, but what really jumps out? What, what comes to mind first as a primary uh, principle or a primary theme? Depending on who you read or maybe your own personal experience with the book, you might say, hey, the focal point of this book is prophecy, right? It's a prophetic book talking about God's plan for human history. Or maybe you say, hey, you know, the focal point of this book is miracles, God working these different miracles in the lives of his people. Maybe about how God delivers his people, a book about deliverance. We see a lot of deliverance in the book of Daniel. Some say the book is all about the doctrine of sovereignty. And you know, all of those elements are found in these passages. But as we've been moving through the chapter, something that keeps jumping off the page, at least in my own thinking, is just the powerful operation of God's grace. How God's grace is powerful and how it's working. And it's God's grace for his people and God's grace for his enemies. For believers, for God's people, we see God's grace working powerfully that they might endure and be used, right? Uh, For non-believers, we see God's grace working powerfully that they might be evangelized and be saved. Uh, Whether God is relating to Nebuchadnezzar or whether he's relating to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego or Daniel or Darius or any of these characters that we're seeing, God's grace is being poured out in a powerful way. And these themes of God's grace for his people and for his enemies come up again tonight in our passage. We're picking back up in Daniel chapter 4. We'll start in verse 19. We're in the middle of a gospel tract that King Nebuchadnezzar wrote and then sent throughout his kingdom toward the end of his reign. He was recounting the story of his conversion to the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of the Bible. The worst man in the world finding grace in the eyes of the Lord and then being used as an ancient Billy Graham to send a message throughout his kingdom. In this tract, Nebuchadnezzar told about a dream he had that had troubled him greatly. Not the same dream as before back in chapter 2, a different one. This is many years later when the astrologers and magicians and Chaldeans once again failed to interpret the dream. Daniel was brought in as he had been so many years ago. This time, Nebuchadnezzar recounted the dream for Daniel. That's where we left off. And we pick up the story in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. 
And Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. Now this is grace. You want to talk about grace operating in the life of a person. We're seeing it right here. Look at how Daniel speaks to the pagan king who had destroyed his homeland, taken him captive, threatened his life, tried to kill his best friends, and then embodied ungodliness day in and day out right before his very eyes. Look at Daniel's words. Uh, Look at his reaction. Look at his attitude toward this man. He's like a neon sign of grace. That thing was just glowing and, and humming in grace for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, did Daniel have Stockholm Syndrome? Had he gone a little bit crazy himself? No, no Stockholm Syndrome. He was simply saturated by what we call agape. He was full of the love of God and had become an agent of grace, heavenly grace, right there in the palace of Babylon. For Daniel... Grace from God wasn't just given that he might survive his years in exile, right? Grace wasn't like the little piece of wood that, you know, the Civil War guys had to bite down on while they were getting their legs sawed off, right? And I feel like sometimes if we talk about biblical endurance or God strengthening us to endure, it's true. I mean, sometimes God has just given us the strength to hold on, right? But God's grace is not so limited as that. God's grace in Daniel's life wasn't just to survive and get through his years of exile. Uh, Not at all. It was for so much more. It operated through him in a really dramatic and remarkable way, day in and day out, year by year. And we can see it right here in this relationship he had with the king. You know, they cared for each other. Look at how they're talking to each other. We don't get a lot of, you know, dissected detail into their relationship, but think about how Nebuchadnezzar usually acts and how he talks to people and how he treats people. And then look at how he's talking to Daniel here. He says, hey, man, don't, don't be troubled. You can tell me. And then look at Daniel saying these tender things, these care-filled words toward Nebuchadnezzar. They had a deep friendship. Daniel didn't want anything bad to happen to this man, despite all that he had done. That's pretty remarkable to me, that Daniel, as a godly, faithful servant of Jehovah, he found a way not just to navigate through life in exile, not just to navigate through life serving in the pagan government of Babylon and doing so with integrity and with righteousness and godliness and all of that, but he found a way to have a real lasting friendship with a man like Nebuchadnezzar, so much so they said, man, Nebuchadnezzar, I, I wish this dream wasn't about you. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. Uh, it's so remarkable, despite all Nebuchadnezzar had done, And now this is remarkable because as readers, we know Nebuchadnezzar doesn't deserve this kind of care and compassion, right? Nebuchadnezzar does not deserve God's grace or Daniel's compassion or these words of tender kindness. He doesn't deserve forgiveness for the things he has done. He doesn't deserve mercy from God. But agape and grace are all about the undeserving, right? We're undeserving, On a spiritual heavenly level, I'm equally as undeserving as Nebuchadnezzar. I certainly haven't butchered as many people as Nebuchadnezzar did. I haven't butchered anyone. But I'm just as undeserving of any of God's grace, any of God's compassion, any of God's ministry or kindness as he was. And grace and agape are all about the undeserving. Grace can't be earned. It's given. 
It's precisely for those who do not deserve it. And that's the grace that's not just given for me, right? I'm not just given grace to to have for myself, but then it's given to me to then pour out on others, right? That's what the Bible teaches, that God saves us and then transforms us to be his body to go out and do likewise, to do what Jesus did and to act like Jesus acted and to love like he did and do works in his name, right? Paul said in Romans 5 that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, right? So we're given the Holy Spirit, we're given the love of God for us, for our benefit, but it's also given to us to operate and to use so that we are then agents of God's grace and agents of God's love to the people around us, to the undeserving people around us. And that love is meant to be shown to others. That's the way Christianity works. And we see it here in Daniel's selfless compassion toward Nebuchadnezzar. We see it in the example of other people through church history. We think of someone like Elizabeth Elliot, great hero, heroine of the faith, right? Uh, she went to share the gospel with the Alka Indians just two years after they brutally murdered her own husband. They had gone down there, made this plan, we're going to minister to these people. We're going to bring the gospel to these people. Her husband and her friends go. They murder them outright. And she hangs out, figures out how to speak the language of that tribe. And two years later, she goes back and says, okay, I'm still coming. I'm still coming with the love of God. I'm still coming with the grace of God. Hey, that's the guy that killed my husband. Let me tell you about Jesus and how he'll forgive you of that sin and how he'll transform your life. And so, man, that's the kind of grace and love we're talking about. Uh, that's the regular, powerful operation of God's grace in the life of a believer. Not that we go on hating our enemies, but that we love them and seek their salvation the same way that Jesus Christ sought our salvation, right? I mean, we think back through our own lives, whatever your background or your experience might have been if you're a Christian here tonight, Jesus Christ sought you out. He sought out your salvation. He extended it to you and said, hey, I have this forgiveness for you. I have this love for you. I don't want you to perish. Will you believe and will you receive the salvation? And then once we're saved, he says, okay, now you get to go and take this message to someone else. You get to be part of that process in somebody else's life. I'm guessing that nobody here had the experience Paul had where you were just walking down the road and all of a sudden Jesus Christ appeared to you on the road and said, hey, here's the gospel. Even then, Paul had heard the gospel. He heard it from Stephen as he stood there, uh, you know, officiating at Stephen's murder himself. But none of us, I don't think, had Jesus Christ appear to us and, you know, have that conversion experience face to face with him, right? People were used by God as agents of grace, agents of the gospel, agents of his love, and used in your life so that you could discover what God had done for you. And now guess what he says? And now and that's not just for you, it's given to you so that you can go and be links in that chain in someone else's life. And so this is the regular powerful operation of the grace of God in the life of a believer. And you see this kind of graciousness and compassion and quite frankly, you know, if we think about it for a minute, the way Daniel is responding to Nebuchadnezzar, to me, this is a greater miracle than the fact that he can interpret a dream. The fact that Daniel, who has been taken as a prisoner of war uh, for decades at this point by this brutal, wicked dictator, 
who knows if Daniel's family survived or not, but the city is destroyed. Judah had fallen. Everything was taken from him. He was forced into this new life in Babylon. His life was threatened all the time. And the fact that he can turn and be like, man, I love this guy. I love this guy the way God loves me. That's a greater miracle than the interpretation of a dream. But you know what? This is the common supply of grace made available to all Christians. That's the same grace that you and I have access to today. Verse 20. The tree which you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and, those, uh, and in whose branches the birds of heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. This is pretty straightforward stuff. One point I'd like us to notice is that in this dream, not every single element stood for something, right? Daniel didn't say, and this is what the leaves mean, and this is what this means, and this is the, this and that and everything. There's not a specific interpretation for every single element or item in the dream. You know, when, we get, when it comes to the Bible in parables or prophecies, visions like this, sometimes I, I think Bible commentators get a little bit carried away. And sometimes just start ascribing all kinds of meaning to every single detail and where every color and every noun gets interpreted and this has to mean this. And we just want to be careful when we're coming to a portion of the Bible like this, a parable, or when we're coming to a vision or something like that. We want to make sure we're not making things up as we study God's Word. In this case, Daniel said, there's pretty much one thing you need to know here. You're the tree. And that was about it, okay? So just be careful with that. Verse 23, And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. So the main message from heaven was, look, Nebuchadnezzar, God is in charge. The watcher said, this is the decree from the Most High God. He's the only one who rules, and he will accomplish his will no matter what. And you know, that's a great reminder after any election, right? Whether it goes your way or it doesn't go your way, God is in charge. His will will be done, uh, and we can praise him for that. But notice, too, here, the watcher says, the kingdom of men, just one. God loves the whole world. He looks down, he says, the kingdom of men. Uh, he has a special plan for Israel, ethnic descendants of Abraham. Uh, in that sense, there are two groups, Israel and everybody else, Gentiles. But God loves the whole kingdom of men. He loves the whole world, and he sits enthroned above the whole world. He has jurisdiction over in the entire universe. Nebuchadnezzar may have been the most powerful man on the planet at the time, but in reality, he was just supervising one little condominium in a little corner of human history, Right? Did Nebuchadnezzar have anything to do with your life, anything to do with the American empire, anything to do with the last many thousands of years? No. He was the most powerful man on the planet for a blip of time, but like everyone else, his life was a vapor. It was gone like a puff of smoke, and God remained and said, hey, yeah, I'm actually the one in charge here. 
But because of his great pride, he was going to be judged by God. And it seemed like what the Lord was going to punish him with was a little bit unusual, right? I mean, if we step back and say, what? What's going to happen here? And we get to these later verses where, what, what's happening? What's going on? <laughs> God, God's turning people into animals? What's going on here? It sounds a little bit unusual. A few years ago in Ohio, a judge was making the news for his unconventional sentences. He would often give those convicted of a crime a choice between regular jail time or some sort of strange second option instead. He would give them a choice. Uh, for example, a woman came and pled guilty to animal neglect and cruelty, and her sentence was to spend either time in jail, I forget how much time, or she could spend eight hours picking up garbage in the smelliest part of the city dump. And the news was there, and they followed her. She chose the dump. She wore flip-flops to the dump. It was, it was awful. Anyway... But they talk to the judge. They say, hey, what's up with this? He says, look, this is my philosophy. We could just send these people to jail, but I don't really want people to go to jail. He says, I, I want people to think about what they've done. I want them to not want to do these sorts of things again. So his philosophy was to try to make each case as personal as possible, each judgment against an individual as personal as possible in order to get the attention of the offenders and serve the purpose of stopping their behavior from happening again. And so he would have people, <laughs> one guy like standing in a chicken suit holding a sign like detailing what kind of crime he had. This other couple who had defrauded some business, they had to put on their door like their names thieves live here their names are blah 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 you know but you know they looked at the the data on his courtroom and the recidivism rate among those convicted in his court was 10 percent the national average is 75 percent and so you know he was making the news uh god wanted to rescue nebuchadnezzar Right? If God was just angry and wanted to get rid of Nebuchadnezzar, he could have just sent you know, fire from heaven and burned him up and said, okay, you're judged. But God wanted to rescue Nebuchadnezzar. And according to that purpose, this here, what we read about, was the Lord's plan. And it was a plan that included mercy and grace for this pagan king. Verse 26, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. And so in wrath, God remembers mercy. And here we have a wonderful portrait of the Lord's salvation. Just think about uh, the uh, arrangement of salvation for a person. When Nebuchadnezzar would bow his heart to heaven, he would be forgiven, and God would throw in a kingdom along with it. It's a great picture, a great portrait of what you know, God does for a person. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how God loves to show the exceeding riches of his grace and allows us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says, not only am I going to forgive your sins, you don't deserve it. You're so guilty. You're so guilty from heaven's perspective. I'm so guilty. And the Lord says, hey, guess what? I'll rescue you from your sin. I will save you out of hell. I will forgive you of your sins. I will clear your guilt. And guess what? I'll throw a kingdom on with it. You can be a co-ruler with me. I'll give you the inheritance of my son. You're a son of mine. You're a daughter of mine. Now I've adopted you. Wow. That's the riches of grace uh, that God shows even to his enemies. It says, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were at war with God, and he came to make peace with those who are willing to receive Christ Jesus. 
In verse 27, Daniel ends his interpretation, but then he gives Nebuchadnezzar an invitation, and we see more of his heart for his friend here. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Having delivered the message of judgment, Daniel immediately tells his friend, the king, here's the way out. Here's what's going to happen. You are guilty. Judgment is coming. Here's the way out. You know, there's nothing wrong with preaching about coming judgment. In fact, it's necessary. You have to preach about coming judgment and telling people who are lost, hey, you are lost and you are on your way to a Christless eternity. But we also need to preach about the rescue available to anyone and everyone who will listen. You know, I find myself, when I think about this, thinking about, uh, especially in bigger cities, some of the street preachers, right, who they just have the sign saying the end is near or talking about hell on a megaphone, and then that's kind of it. Now, listen, maybe the Lord asked those people to go out and preach. You know, I, I don't want to judge another man's servant. But tell people about the rescue. Tell people about deliverance, not just the damnation, Right? And you get the impression that some of these people are just so excited to tell people you're going to hell. Daniel wasn't excited that this was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, and he wanted to get to the rescue part. He said, hey, look, this is coming. This is true. This is going to happen. There's no mistake about it. You deserve it. You're sinning. But here, break off your sins. Here's how you can be saved. Here's how you can find mercy, because God is a merciful God. He says, look, if you do this, the Lord will show you mercy. And so we want to preach about deliverance, not just damnation. And here Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar a clear path to rescue. Be righteous, show mercy. As New Testament Christians in the church age, we have the fullness of God's revelation in a way that Daniel didn't. But the way out of judgment, the way out of hell is effectively the same, right? Be righteous, and that righteousness will produce fruit, must produce fruit. Faith without works is dead, James says. So are we talking about salvation by works? No, of course not. The Bible's very, very clear about that. Jesus himself said, hey, to be saved, your righteousness would have to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And everybody around said, well, that's impossible. And then Jesus was like, and by the way, these guys are dirty sinners. <laughs> and he was condemning the Pharisees all the time. So how can a person be righteous and escape judgment? Well, the Bible says we receive it through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans 3 that righteousness is revealed through faith in Christ on all who believe. And so when a person repents and believes in Jesus, he gives them his robe of righteousness. And just as Daniel said, that righteousness would be visible in the life of that believer, right? No secret righteousness that nobody knows about. It's visible. Uh, the same can be expected today, that if I have righteousness operating in my life, it's going to produce fruit. God's grace doesn't just look the other way on sin, right? I mean, it doesn't just say, ah, you're okay. I'll pretend you didn't do all those things. That's not what God's grace does. No, to be a believer means to repent. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke that he came to call sinners to repentance and that if you don't repent, you're going to perish. But when a person repents, they can expect God to respond with love and mercy and grace just as Daniel expected it in regard to Nebuchadnezzar. Sadly, Nebuchadnezzar didn't go for it. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he's the one speaking. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Even after all of that, after all he had seen, I'm sure Daniel talked to him over a year. I'm, I'm telling you that Daniel preached this message again to him and said, hey man, 
you, you, need to, you need to fall on the mercy of God. God still gave him a year. What sort of things do you think Nebuchadnezzar did in that year? Uh, man, the long-suffering, astonishing grace of God. But finally, there came a point where that mercy expired for this issue. Nebuchadnezzar says, it all came upon me. When it comes to judgment, there's no fall guy. We've all seen, you know, the movies where the mobsters are all on trial, but the bosses convince some low-level thug to pretend like he's the mastermind, right? He becomes the fall guy, and he gets the conviction, and all the real bad guys walk free. That's not how it works with God's judgment. God says, yeah, you're guilty, and you're the one that's going to be judged. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar said, this all came on me. Being the most powerful, most feared, you know, most wealthy man in all the world wasn't enough, not nearly enough for him to get out from under the judgment of God. It's not how it happens in God's court. Here's how it went down, verse 30. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Archaeologists have found that Nebuchadnezzar had millions, millions of bricks stamped with his name. Nebuchadnezzar, and it had some other thing on there. Uh, in fact, 90 to 95% of all the buildings throughout the region that they have found were made with bricks that had his name stamped on every one of them. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. They estimate it was something like 15 million bricks. It says for the period, it's one of the, it's one of the things you see most often in all the museums. They found so many of them. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. Brick by brick, he wrote, me, 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 mine, mine, I did it, me, 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 you're welcome, Nebuchadnezzar, so cool. And man, this guy had some real pride. In verse 31, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules uh, in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. No one had to tell God what Nebuchadnezzar had said. God doesn't rely on tattlers. Uh, he was listening and watching. And when God spoke, the message was the same, right? It was the same thing that he had said a year before through his servant Daniel. We can be sure that our God is consistent. He's not going to change the rules of engagement partway through. One of the signs of the cults that we see today is their message mysteriously changes from time to time. Remember when we said this, actually, we now say this. We have new revelation, and the rules sort of change. And the things that they claim God says, now he says something contradictory. Well, that doesn't happen in the Bible, and that's not who our Lord is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going to change the rules partway through. He does what he says he'll do in regards to judgment. He does what he says he'll do in regards to prophecy. It also means that his grace is the same too, though. And man, that's good news. God's grace cannot spoil in your life. It doesn't have an expiration date like a milk in your refrigerator. It's not a battery that eventually loses its ability to power or charge. God doesn't move his boundary lines of grace in your life. He's up front about his standards and his principles and his plan and his provision for you. And it's going to stay the same. God's not going to stop loving you. He'll love you forever and for always. Verse 33, that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. 
Now, commentators are quick to explain this away as a psychological disorder. They label it lycanthropy or boanthropy. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar just went crazy for a while. A couple of issues with that perspective. If it was just a mental illness and just a mental illness, this, the suggestion is that well, if Nebuchadnezzar had just had his Prozac, you know, everything would have been back to normal, right? But that's not what Daniel's presenting in this book. There's something supernatural happening here. This is a transaction between heaven and earth. Now, first of all, human beings cannot digest grass. So it says he went out and he ate grass, and he ate grass for seven years. Well, human beings can't eat grass. It's not toxic to us, but we can't digest it. In fact, I was reading this sad story about how there's some pastor somewhere who he had convinced his congregation that the way to see visions of God is they all started eating grass and they have like video of everybody's just vomiting in the church service because they think God's doing something. They're just eating a bunch of grass. Don't go to a church like that, okay? But secondly, this becomes a matter of biblical interpretation. You know, how do you draw a distinction between this event and the fiery furnace? Well, the fiery furnace, that was a miraculous event. This, this is just a mental illness. Well, how do we draw those lines? It's arbitrary. We're not over the text. The text is over us. The way we interpret God's word needs to be consistent. And we don't need to try to explain away the miracles in the Bible. We serve a miracle-working God. We don't need to be embarrassed by that. And so this was not an organic chemical imbalance. This was God judging Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 34, And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? The worst man in the worst possible state was still reachable by God's grace. No one you know is in a worse condition than Nebuchadnezzar was in verse 33. Mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, he's the worst man in the world, in the worst condition possible, right? And yet, as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, while there's life, there's hope, as far as the gospel is concerned. And so pray for those family members, those enemies of yours, those people who seem like, man, that person can never get saved. Just keep praying for them. And maybe God will use you, maybe God will use somebody else, but anybody can get saved. King Nebuchadnezzar could get saved. And that means that anybody on the planet uh, can be reached by God's grace. When Nebuchadnezzar finally relented, he turned from his sin and to God in praise. And suddenly this awful, wicked man, he sounds a lot like David, right? In your Bible, you probably see it bumped out and, and styled as poetry. He sings a psalm of praise to the Lord here. He all of a sudden becomes like David the poet king. We see him here like Saul turning into Paul. Look at the power of God's grace in this transformation. The king of Babylon reminds us that true saving faith must be marked by transformation. After all, just saying, Lord, Lord, doesn't make a person saved. It's a faith that repents, believes, and obeys the will of God that marks real conversion. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor, splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Notice the generosity of God's grace. He gives Nebuchadnezzar not just rescue, but gifts and rewards as well. God's grace towards us is so rich and so giving and so generous. 
We were talking at home about the parable of the, the talents. The master came and gave his servants one guy 10 coins, one guy five coins, one guy one coin. Right? He says, hey, you guys work for me. I'm going away. Here's what I'm going to do. Give you this. Use it. And when I come back, show me what you got. And so two of the guys did that, and they came back and said, hey, I turned your 10 coins into 10 more coins. Here you go. And the, and the master goes, that's amazing. Here's 10 cities. And we were explaining to the kids, you know, if you paid someone to mow your lawn, and you said, hey, I'm going to pay you $15 to mow my lawn. Can you do that? Yeah. And then an hour later, you go out and you said, did you finish mowing my lawn? Yeah, I did. That's awesome. I bought you four houses because you mowed my lawn. What? Well, that's what God did. He said, I gave you 10 cities. But aren't they just servants? Aren't they just guys that were doing their job? Yeah, that's exactly right. But that's who God is. That's the kind of grace that he has. He says, hey, you, you serve me. You were faithful. You did what I asked you to do. Have 10 cities to rule over. Have five cities to rule over. That's what uh, our God is like. That's the kind of richness and generosity he has toward us. And so it follows that that grace working through us would be generous towards others as well. In verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth, his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. And so as Nebuchadnezzar leaves the pages of scripture here, he does so with a warning. You know, this isn't just a campfire story. It's not just a spooky Halloween around, uh, you know, around the fire story that he's telling. No, he says, hey, I'm talking to you. He's like, hey, I'm talking to you who are reading this. If you're not a believer, don't make the mistake like I did. Believe God. Go his way. Give your life to him. And so, you know, if you're not a Christian here tonight, the Bible's very clear. Judgment is coming for you. You're on your way to a Christless eternity in hell forever. You can't escape it. If you don't repent and turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, you're going to die and go to hell. But... God is a God of grace and mercy and rescue. If you will believe on him, you will not perish, but instead receive everlasting life. For the Christians here, this passage reminds us to enjoy and celebrate and utilize the grace of God. The same power that pulled you out of your sin and now operates in you to minister to others, especially the undeserving, it's the same power Daniel had. That's the power you have. Now, the, the circumstances of your life may be different. We don't know what lies ahead. Probably none of us are going to get thrown into a lion's den. But the same power operates in your life, in my life, in Daniel's life, in Shadrach's life, all of these guys. And we are sent out to minister and operate that grace, especially toward the undeserving, especially toward our enemies. And we can be sure that God will continue using his powerful grace in us and through us as he accomplishes his will day by day all around the world.